Good morning. Let's open in a word of prayer ourselves, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for uh, this beautiful, beautiful day. God, we, we thank You for uh, the springtime. The sun is out, Lord, and we're just reminded of Your beauty at a time like this. God, I pray that uh, today, as we open up Your Word now, that You would again show us Your truth, Your beauty. Lord, that You would impact our hearts with this portion of Scripture in Romans, that You would use it in a way that would be meaningful to us and would help transform our lives. We pray this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. How many of you uh, watched the Royal Wedding? Raise your hand if you watched the Royal Wedding. Oh, okay, we had about a third of you or so. Okay, I missed it. I missed it. I didn't, I didn't watch it live. I mean, uh, Scott Eichler had invited me over to his house to watch it with him. Uh, but I said, you know, Scott, I've got other priorities, you know. So he was there with tissue in hand. Um, but, uh, right, Kim? Right, exactly. But, you know, it was, it was a glorious event, and I actually got a chance to watch some of it on replay the other day. In fact, my wife and I were flipping through the channels, and we saw the wedding, and we thought, oh, well, let's watch this for a few moments. And, and as we did, we were watching all the spectacle and the, you know, just all of the, the pomp and circumstance. And, and, and as, as we were watching, we noticed uh, the, the, royal, uh, the royal guard, okay? You know, they're dressed in red, right? We've seen them before, and, and they look so... Uh, majestic, and, and Bennett can, comes in the house, and, or comes in the door from the backyard, and uh, he comes in, he's looking at these guys, and he looks and he says, Daddy, are those the bad guys? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I think he has them confused with someone else, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think he has them confused with another, you know, group of people that were in red. You know, the Emperor's Guard in Star Wars. I said, no, Benny, they, they're not the bad guys. They used to be, but not anymore. And, uh, and then he saw another, he just saw something else in the wedding. He saw, of course, you know, William and Kate. And uh, when he saw William and Kate, he turned to me and Casey, no joke, Scout's Honor, and he said, is that Mary and Joseph? That's what he thought. He thought that was Mary and Joseph up there. I said, no, no, honey, that's, that's not Mary and Joseph. Not quite, not quite. But hey, look at this, look at this picture of the wedding again. Uh, I mean, wow, look at the, the spectacle behind, right? There, there's so many people, and it, it, was, it was just a, a glorious day. Uh, even uh, fr from my vantage point, I felt that uh, the Lord was honored in a lot of ways during that ceremony. I, I felt that, that the name of Christ was lifted up during that service, if you paid attention to what was said. Um, of course, they, they come from a different tradition than us, and and whatnot, but, but it was, uh, it was a, 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 a very uh, wonderful service. And of course, the people that you would see behind there, you know, you're kind of looking at the people and you're thinking, I don't know who any of these people are, right? As we were watching the wedding, we, we were looking at all these dignitaries and people coming in with the hats and whatnot, and all I could think of was, I have no idea who any of these people are. But of course... In Britain, it was a who's who of Great Britain. The title of my message today is Who's Who in Rome? Who's Who in Rome? You see, today in our uh, text in Romans, 
we are going to come across a portion of Scripture at the start of chapter 16 where Paul's going to be listing all these people. And you have no idea who they are. And barely do I. And yet, as he goes through this whole list of people, he is espousing, he's proclaiming a who's who list in the church in Rome, among the churches of Rome. And, and, and we might read this list and think, wow, this is boring. I don't know these people. I don't know who they are. I know that they, they're well known. I know they've done great things, but I don't know who they are. So how could I possibly learn anything from this? That, that'll be our tendency today. But I want us to remember that Paul is citing these people's names for a reason. And there is something that we can glean from a text like Romans 16, 1 to 16. So let's go there in just a moment here. But first, before I get there, I wanted to say a few things about this group of people that Paul is about to make mention of. Number one, Paul speaks of some, uh, these are some noteworthy aspects in Romans 16. Paul speaks of some 26 people in this section, in the span of 16 verses. He speaks of 26 people. And if you were to go to the end of the chapter, there'd be about another 10 or so. What's interesting is that there are 16 men that he speaks of and about 10 women that he speaks of. The vast majority that we're going to see here in Romans 16 are never elsewhere mentioned in all of Scripture. There are a few peculiar groups mentioned. There are a couple households two households, namely of a a prominent person with a a household of literally slaves. There are five house churches and five co-workers. And so Paul is speaking to different groups of people among the churches and Christians in Rome. German theologian Peter Lamp has done some extensive work on the names in Romans 16, and he identifies that ten of them are definitely former or current slaves. Can you believe that? Think about that for a moment. Paul is noting people who by their name, it was very evident that their name derived from a slave's family. Four of them were, were a little bit more well-to-do and for the, other, for the rest, it's a little bit unclear. But if you were to take that ratio through to the end, um, if that was indicative of the church in Rome, then you could say that the church in Rome was made up of of, of between slaves and, and, and high citizens, a ratio of two to one. And so there was a, there was a wide variety among the, the socioeconomic uh, uh, differences between the group. Taken as, a, uh, taken as a snapshot of the whole, this was a very unique church, a very diverse church, one in which the high and the low would, would uh, unite together. But I want to get to the text here. So let's turn to Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read uh, just the first two verses to get us started. So Romans 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in King, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Okay, here we have the first name, right? A woman by the name of Phoebe. And she lives uh, in a town of Kinkria, or Senkria, but really in Greek it would be, the, the sea would be more of a K. Uh, it was a prominent seaport eight miles south of the prominent city of Corinth. 
And uh, so, so this woman came from a, a well-to-do city, and she also seems herself to be somewhat well-to-do. Uh, Paul lists her first, and that would take a place of prominence, of course, in the letter. But what's interesting about uh, Phoebe here is that Paul mentions a couple words about her that are some key words that we're to take note of. Uh, the first word is servant. She's a servant. In Greek, it's diakonos in Greek, which actually means deacon or deaconess. And the second word that we see there is the word helper. We're going to get to that word in just a moment. And before we get to these words, notice Paul is commending her. He's commending her. He says, I commend to you Phoebe. If you were to read elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I don't need to commend me because you know me. You know who I am. And so this indicates that the church in Rome actually doesn't know who Phoebe is. Or very few of them know who she is. In fact, what Paul is essentially doing here is he's writing her a letter of recommendation. He's saying, this is Phoebe. And by the way, how, why would he be talking about her? Well, if she's not in Rome, if they don't know her, and Paul's likely in Corinth, near Cancrea, sending a letter to Rome, hey, maybe Phoebe was the one who took it. That's what scholars suppose. They suppose that Phoebe was the one who actually hand-carried the letter from Corinth to the churches of Rome. And so Paul, giving this letter to a woman who very few knew, also gave with her a letter of recommendation or a note here of recommendation that she is to be trusted. She is to be uh, listened to. She is to be paid attention to and honored. Now what about those words servant and helper? Again, the first word, servant, a servant of the church. In Greek, diakonos, it meant deacon or deaconess. Uh, Doug Moo writes, and I don't have the quote up there, but he says, he, he indicates that this very well could have been the office of a deaconess. She was perhaps that well respected in Cancrea or Corinth. But Doug Moo writes, we put office in quotation marks because it is very likely that regular offices in local Christian churches were still in the process of being established as people who regularly ministered in a certain way were gradually recognized officially by the congregation and given a regular title. Let me read that last part again. People who regularly ministered in a certain way were gradually recognized officially by the congregation and given a regular title. You know, Moo's comments there are, are really indicative of so much of the New Testament. We today, you know, we have... Uh, in such a democratic system, we always think in terms of voting. We vote, right? And, and, and certainly there was an element of voting in the New Testament in terms of voting in officers of the church and leaders of the church. But really what, what Doug Moo is suggesting, what I think is pr pretty much more indicative of the New Testament, is that the church gradually came to recognize people who naturally in their body served and led in certain ways and then assigned to them those titles. In other words, it was a much more natural progression of leadership. It wasn't a bunch of candidates and we only vote on two of them out of the five. No, it was nothing like that. The church of the New Testament was a church that looked around its body and said, who are naturally leading this church? Who are naturally stepping up to serve? Who are the respectable ones? Who are the, the ones who are honorable in the church? Let us assign to them. 
these titles. It is likely that Phoebe was a deaconess in the church of Corinth or Cancrea. It is likely that she was one who would often, as in Acts 6, care for the widows, for the orphans, relieve the poor, visit the sick. And Paul is indicating here, receive her, he's telling the church in Rome, receive this deaconess in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. As she has received so many, you also receive her, Paul says. And she's been a helper of many. In Greek, the word helper there is prostatis. It probably means a benefactor or a patron. It is likely that Phoebe was a woman of, of, some, of some wealth and perhaps a higher social status and had helped Paul and other traveling missionaries uh, in their ministry efforts. And so now was the time for Rome to reach out to one who had been so good to Paul and so good to others. As a helper, as a patron or a benefactor, she would be able to financially support her journey from Cancrea to Rome. And when she gets there, Paul's saying, hey, open up your doors to this woman. She is a special woman in the church. What about verse 3? Let's move on to verse 3. He goes to another group of people. Greet Priscilla, or as some of your Bibles may say Prisca, and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Like, greet the church that is in their house. Now Priscilla, or, or Prisca, which would be more appropriate to the word in Greek there, and Achilla, they were well known to Paul. And if you go back and read Acts chapter 18, you learn that though Paul met them in Ephesus, they were actually from Rome. And they were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius when he decreed that all the Jews must leave Rome. And so they were somewhat homeless as, they, as this husband and wife team left the churches of Rome and went uh, uh, eastward toward Ephesus. Paul met them there in Acts chapter 18. He took them, excuse me, in Corinth, and then he took them to Ephesus where they ministered for many, many uh, months, perhaps even over a year. That's where they helped Apollos. And when it says they, they, he, they risked their own necks for Paul, that was probably in Acts 19 where Paul was in a riot in Ephesus. These, this couple helped Paul in a dire time of need. They helped him get away from a riot in Acts chapter 19. They were some special, special people whom, who, had, who had done much for the cause of Christ. And so Paul is taking, telling Phoebe, Phoebe, take this letter back. And by now, Priscilla and Achilla had gone back and had been serving in the church in Rome. And he says, go back and greet them for me. They have been good to me. They've been good to the church. Well, let's continue. And again, you may be wondering, well, why are we going over these names? You know what? At, toward the end, we will come full circle and see a little bit of what we can pull from this as a church ourselves. Look at the end of verse uh, 5, or the middle of verse 5. He says, well, he says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So here's a whole church underneath them. He says, greet my beloved Epeonetus, uh, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. 
So here we have uh, four other individuals. Individuals likely in the house church of Priscilla and Aquila. The first, Epianetus, the first fruit of Achaia or Asia in some of your Bibles. That means he was the first convert, the first one to come to Christ in Ephesus was this man. And then, and then the next, Mary. They don't mention much about Mary other than the fact that she was a laborer for him. And then finally, Andronicus and Junia. Again, probably husband and wife. Um, my countrymen, indicating that they were Jewish. So some of these people were Gentiles and some of these people were Jews. And Paul's writing to both, mainly Gentiles. And he also mentions that they were fellow prisoners of Paul. Perhaps that they were in prison with him or were in prison at a time concurrent with Paul. He mentions something interesting about uh, Andronicus and Junia, and it's one that we're going to pause for a moment and study as a church. He says, Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now, that phrase, who are of note among the apostles, we read that in our English Bibles and we probably think, well, that just means that Andronicus and Junia, husband and wife, that the apostles looked upon them and thought highly of them. And in fact, that is a potential translation of the Greek phrase in question. But actually, it's not the probable translation of it. In fact, the probable translation of it is that the word among there, which is the Greek word en, indicates association or affiliation with. In other words, it should be read something to the effect of my fellow prisoners who are, uh, who are among those who are noteworthy among the apostles. In other words, they themselves, Paul is indicating, are apostolos or apostolon, plural. You say, wait a minute. You're telling me that the, that the way Paul phrases it, it is more probable than not that he's actually calling Andronicus and Junia apostles? Yes. Yes, the vast majority of scholars agree that Paul is actually noting that they themselves are apostles. And in fact, as all the way up until the 12th century A.D., think about this, for 1,200 years, that was the reading of the text, according to the church. It wasn't until the 13th century and onward, up until about the 19th century, where they started changing it a little bit. They started saying, well, they're among the apostles. Not that they are apostles, but that they are among the apostles. And then here we are in the 21st century, and scholars are going back and forth trying to determine. But nevertheless, the earliest church fathers recognized that this text suggested that both Andronicus and Junia, husband and wife, were apostles. You say, well, how can that be? Some questions arise when we think of the apostles. And I've got a picture of the twelve apostles. Let's pull that up. Uh, obviously, a, a great Renaissance painting there. We, we, look at these, we look at the twelve and we think... Well, now, wait a minute. Uh, when, when, I look, when I think of the word apostle, I think of the twelve, right? I think of those twelve men and only those twelve men. Well, okay, and I'll add Paul. Okay, there's thirteen, we'll say. Thirteen apostles of Jesus Christ. 
when I hear the term uh, apostle, that's what I think of. Uh, weren't, the, weren't the apostles limited to just this group? And of course, elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul indicates that, uh, that, that, that women in particular, and Paul was very clear about this in 1 Timothy 2, he said women are not to be teachers of men in the church. So, is Paul contradicting himself? Is on the one hand, he says in 1 Timothy 2, uh, a woman is not uh, to lead or teach a man in 1 Timothy 2. And then on the other hand, here he is in Romans 16 suggesting that Junia is an apostle, which would essentially be a significant leader or teacher among all people. So is Paul mistaken? Is he contradicting himself? I would suggest that some of these issues that we're having with the term apostle arise from a misunderstanding of the Greek word apostolos. You see, the term can mean apostle. It can refer simply to the twelve. It can refer simply to Paul. It can refer simply to those who were among the original twelve, thirteen men who led the church in the first century. But did you know that the New Testament gives evidence that that was not the only use of the term? Elsewhere it meant messenger. Elsewhere it meant emissary. Elsewhere, in many places in the New Testament, it referred to highly respected and recognized leaders in the church who led particularly with respect to missionary efforts. Take, for instance, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Epaphroditus, notice this. Yet I consider, Paul's writing about Epaphroditus, he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your apostolos, your apostle, your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need. You see, well, our Bibles translate that as messenger. You say, why? It's the same word in Greek. It's the same term that we're looking at in Romans chapter 16. It's the same term Jesus used to describe the twelve. It's the same term Paul used to describe himself as an apostle. Why here does the term change from apostle to messenger? Well, I think it changes for a good reason. I think it changes because the translators of the New King James Version and many other versions that you have in your, in your hands today, those translators made a decision. They said, do we want to link Epaphroditus with the other 12, 13 apostles? And the answer was, no. We, we need to recognize him as an apostolos, but not in the sense that Jesus assigned to the 12 or assigned to Paul. And so here, the translators made an educated decision to take that word apostolos and change it to the Greek word messenger or emissary. Highly respected leader. But make no mistake about it. Paul called Epaphroditus apostolos. He called him an apostle. Bet you didn't have him on your list of apostles. How about this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a passage you know all too well. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Have you ever taken note 
of the difference between verse 5 and 7? Is Paul repeating himself? Do we really suppose that Paul is simply repeating himself? He's saying, by Peter, and then the twelve, and then the twelve. It's possible, it is possible that he's repetition. You know, he included Peter, and then he included the twelve, so Peter was obviously in the twelve. Maybe he's doing repetition again, but maybe not. Maybe what Paul is suggesting there is that there were many apostolon in the church, that there were many emissaries, that there were many messengers. And in fact, in the book of Acts, even Barnabas is indicated. I believe it's Acts 14. Even Barnabas is suggested as an apostle with Paul. And so, friends, when we hear the term apostle, when we see that word in the New Testament, do we need to simply think the twelve in Paul? No. Not at all. I'm suggesting it's much more biblical and much more reasonable when we see that term to suggest that on the one hand it could be the twelve and or Paul or it could be a wider range of people whom Paul and the other apostles recognized as special messengers, as special emissaries of the church, particularly with respect to missions. Epaphroditus, I'm sending him to you. Andronicus and Junia, they've gone to Rome. Greet them for me. My fellow countrymen, they weren't from Rome. Greet them for me. Paul is noting various apostolon, messengers, who were highly respected, who needed to be honored for their ministry. And so today, when we see the term apostle, you know, some churches today use the term apostle to describe some of the people in their church. Um, you may or may not have been aware of that, but there are many church traditions, you know, where we, you know, we use the term elder. Uh, we, we, uh, we've used the term deacon in the past. Uh, we have pastor and whatnot. There are some churches that use the term apostle to describe certain people in their church. Now, many of us, we kind of, we kind of rage against that. We think, oh, that, that doesn't sound quite right. Let me suggest that this term used in its biblical framework can, within reason, still be applied to the modern New Testament church. We do not have to apply the term apostle to strictly the twelve or twelve plus Paul. You know why? Because Paul didn't use the term uniformly in that way. And so, I don't want anyone to mistake, let's be clear, we don't want anyone to mistake themselves of having the kind of authority and the kind of power that Jesus gave to the twelve and to Paul. That's not what we're suggesting. We're not suggesting that there might be apostles today with that same level of power and authority and inspiration directly from God. We're not suggesting that. But we are suggesting that the term can be used in a reasonable way to denote those who are special emissaries and special messengers. An authority that is, that is clearly noted in the church. And so if you come across another church or a group of Christians who use the term apostle, before you judge that term, before you judge the person who claims to be that, ask them what they mean. What do you mean by that? Sometimes they'll mean, well, I'm, I'm a missionary. I go, and I've been asked to to go to foreign lands and to preach the the gospel. And my church recognized that as apostleship. You know what? I don't think I'd have a problem with that. Because Paul didn't have a problem with that. 
That was, that's what Epaphroditus was. That's what Andronicus and Junia were. And so, let us, this is the, in conclusion of this point here, let us, when we hear the term apostle, take pause and not strictly assign it to the twelve and to Paul, but know that it could also be a special messenger and a special emissary. Okay. We good? Somewhat. You guys are still chewing on that one. I can see it. Let's go to verse 8. Verse 8. Uh, he goes through a list of some more people. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those uh, who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Okay, we have a, another group of people we're going to go through rather quickly here. I wanted to note toward the end the household of Aristobulus and the household of Narcissus. Okay, those two in particular right now. The fact, if you notice, that Paul actually doesn't say, say hello to Aristobulus. Say hello to Narcissus. Instead, he says, say hello to their household. This could indicate two things. Number one, it could indicate that they, were, they themselves were not believers, but the people underneath them were. Or number two, it could indicate that these were two people who had since died and their household were among the Christians in Rome. Aristobulus, interestingly enough, may have been the brother of King Herod Agrippa, whom Paul tried to convert in the latter chapters of Acts. There's some church history that, that may establish that. So here we have the brother, perhaps, of a prominent king in Palestine. And, in, and then we have Herodian, who is very likely, by the name, a descendant of the Herods. So we've gone from, from slaves to, to high class to, to some prominent political figures, perhaps. And then we have uh, Narcissus, actually. The, the C there should be more of a K. Narcissus, uh, from which we get uh, any, any word you notice? Narcissism, right. You know why we get that word? Because church history has it that uh, Narcissus excuse me, actually committed suicide before... Uh, this letter got to him in Rome. Uh, he was likely not a believer, according to church tradition. He was likely a, a freed slave who served the emperor Claudius, and he himself then had lots of slaves, but he himself, according to church tradition, was not a believer, and that he actually committed suicide before Paul's letter had reached him. And Paul knew about that, and that's why he speaks of him distantly, if you will. Just some interesting facts. Let's go to verse 12 here. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. I'll stop right there. Actually, greet Rufus, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So here we have a, a few other names. Tryphena and Tryphosa, probably sisters. Literally, in Greek or in Latin, it would be dainty and delicate, which is terms I use to describe my wife. Uh, dainty and delicate, honey. So you are Tryphena and Tryphosa. And I was thinking, if we have a girl, you know, another girl someday, I know you're, she's not pregnant, you know, come on now. But if we do have another girl, you know, these are good names, honey. And Persis. Persis is also a female name, did you know? And then we have Rufus. Now, there's something interesting about Rufus. Anybody know what could be noteworthy about Rufus? Anybody know? Nobody. Rufus, according to church tradition, 
may have been the son of Simon the Cyrene. And who was Simon the Cyrene? He was the man who held the cross of Christ during Jesus' uh, crucifixion. He was the one who took, when, when Jesus fell with the cross, he was the one who took the cross upon his shoulder and walked that road to Golgotha. And so Rufus here was recognized in the church in Rome as being the son of Simon the Cyrene. And Paul mentions also his mother. He says, greet his mother and mine. You notice that? Paul here isn't suggesting that, that uh, Rufus's mother is also his biologically. What Paul is suggesting here is that Rufus's mother ministered to Paul in such a way that he would call her his mom. Ladies, you have uh, more children than those that are your biological children. Many more. And I can think of um, some women in my past, some moms in my past, who were like a mom to me as I grew up and as I continue to grow up. Uh, ladies, you have an opportunity not just to be uh, mothers of biological children, but you have an opportunity to be mothers and nurturers of so many in the church. And I urge you, in, as we approach Mother's Day, I urge you to consider being like Rufus's mother, a mom who is not just a mom of biological children, but who had children in the Lord here in the church. Reach out and minister to those in this church. It does... Make a difference. Verse 14, we're coming to the conclusion here. Verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Come through, coming through to the very end here, we have two final uh, house churches, if you will. The first church is indicated by the fact that the brethren who are with them at the end of verse 14, and the second church indicated by all the saints who are with them. So these were likely two smaller house churches. And by the way, in case you wanted to know, a house church in Rome would usually span anywhere from about 70 to 80 or so people at most, at most, sometimes as few as 20 or 30. Uh, but these, these house churches would take place in prominent, more wealthy Christians' homes and would be able to accommodate upwards of even 80 people. And Paul concludes, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. The kiss in the New Testament, indicative of their affection, of their unity, of their love for one another. And the churches of Christ, Paul says, all the churches that are outside of Rome, they also greet you. Now, coming to the end of this, right? And we're looking at the list and we're saying, I don't know anybody on this. I, who are these people? And why does Paul spend so much time talking about them? I mean, we, man, we've gone through some great stuff in Romans. And here we are, kind of on pause, while Paul goes through a list of names, right? Why this list? Why did Paul spend so much time on it? Let me ask you this. How would you have felt? Let's suppose you were in Rome. You were in Rome. 
and Paul had not met most of you, but he had heard of you. He had heard of you. Your work had been recognized. And the story of your work had gone through Asia Minor to Paul's ears. How would it feel to hear from the chief apostle your name read aloud before the church congregation? This, this was a letter. And, and they're reading the letter. Paul, an apostle to the churches of Rome. And they go through the whole letter in one reading, by the way. <laughs> How long did it take me? Two and a half years? We're a little behind. They went through it all the way through in one setting. And then they'd read it again. And a few days later, they'd read it again. Because they were soaking up what Paul was writing to them. He's writing them a letter. And toward the end of the letter... All of this theology, all of this glorious truth about God, about Christ, about the Spirit, about Christians, about the church, about Israel, and he comes to the end, and your name is mentioned. How does that make you feel? It encourages you. It encourages you, doesn't it? It motivates you. You come through this glorious letter, and at the end, your name is mentioned in it because of your work because of what you've been doing for the cause of Christ. Paul mentions you by name, though he's never shaken your hand. You feel honored. And that honor gives you motivation to bear down and to continue forward. And so I ask the question uh, today in our, in our application section, I ask this, this final question. What can we possibly learn from a who's who list in Romans? Well, we can learn this. Number one on your outline, it is good to recognize people who serve our Lord with distinction. Give honor to whom honor is due. We must be doing this, friends. We must be showing honor to those who serve with distinction in the church. And we've done that from time to time. And many of you have been named by name. And you know, we don't, we don't, we don't serve to be named. We know that on the last day, Jesus Christ is going to see everything that you and I have done, even in secret. But you know, it does feel good to be recognized by the church when the church pauses for just a moment and says, Hey, Mary Ann, what you have done with the coasters, with Awana, with so many of the children, you have served with distinction at Coast Bible Church. Thank you. We all thank you. He says, Glenn, you have been chairman of our board for so many years. And the break that you're now on, so well deserved. Because you've been like a father, like a grandfather to so many in this church. Thank you for what you've done. I could go on and on and on. Many of you have served with distinction. Others of you, I would ask, will you serve with that same level of honor and distinction that our Lord might on the last day honor you for the work that you've done? Paul is doing that. And it's building the church and it's strengthening it. Secondly, the church began as an eclectic group of people. Different genders, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different social classes. In like fashion, all people are welcome here at Coast Bible Church. Amen? 
All people. I, I can't tell you how many times I've invited the homeless to come. They come to our door at least once a week. We serve and help the homeless. I say, hey, come on Sunday. I want you to come. I want you to sit in the front row. They rarely come. But I believe that they know that they're welcome here. All ethnicities are welcome here. Male and female. All social classes. All people are welcome in this room. Paul knew that. He spoke of slaves. He spoke of high class. He spoke spoke of men. spoke of women. All people are welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. Number three, notice this. Paul was never alone in ministry. He relied heavily on men, on women, on benefactors, on co-workers to do the work of the ministry with him. And the church, therefore, is not to be identified by its pastor or by its staff or by the work of, but, but, but by the work of the whole body of Christ. There's one thing I cannot stand more than anything else. And it is when I ask someone out from another church or, or whatnot, and I say, hey, uh, tell me about your church. What do you like about it? And they say, my pastor is so funny. And I'm sitting there going, what? Or, or they, they respond and they say, oh, yeah, our, our youth pastor, he is the coolest guy ever. And that's what I think of my church. And I'm looking at him going, what are you talking about? This, this is not people worship. This is definitely not about me. It's not about the staff. It's not about the elders. It's not about any one person or group in the church. It's about the whole body of Christ. And when I ask someone, tell me about your church. What, what, is, what is good that is happening there? When they respond to me talking about a person, talking about how witty their pastor is, or boy, he gives a great sermon every Sunday, I think, wow, what are they missing? Because the church is so much more than what the pastor does for 40 minutes on Sunday morning. Amen? It is so much more than that. It is about the ministry that takes place when this time is over, when we go out there and we're talking to one another and we're saying, how are you doing? How can I help you? How can I support you? Are you sick? Can I bring you a meal? Are you hospitalized? Can I go visit you? That's what the church is all about. Did you get my email this week, friends? I, I sent an email out. So if you, if you are on the email list, you've got it. If you're not, you need to give us your email. I sent out an email. I said, hey, here are two families that desperately need prayer, that desperately need meals, that need care. And many of you have responded. Many of you have. But guess what? There's still some opportunity there. If you were to go back to my email and, and click on the, the link there and it would take you to an opportunity to give meals and, and to care for them, there's still opportunity. There's still opportunity. Paul says, I want you to serve with distinction. I want you to serve with honor. On the last day, I, I want you to be named by Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for uh, a portion of Your Word, Lord, that by all our eyes, by all our indication, seems a bit fruitless. Lord, it seems a bit, okay, what's the point? 
But God, we can see in this text, we can see in this list of names, that you, through Paul, are encouraging the church. That you're motivating people, Lord. That you're building them up. That you're causing them to, to, to want to serve with honor and distinction. And God, we have learned that the church is so much more than just what the pastor or the staff are doing. Paul was not a lone ranger. Nor did he greatly accept all the accolades, Lord. He said instead, let the whole body of Christ do the work of the ministry. Let Jesus Christ the head be honored. And let the body, the whole body of Jesus Christ do the work of the ministry. God, I pray as a church that we would serve with distinction. That we would open our doors to all people of all shapes and sizes, of all backgrounds. And that we, Lord, would not serve alone, but that that we would serve together, hand in hand, knowing that the body of Christ is so much more than one man or one woman. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.